0: I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. The we're sirens? the Sirens. Today we are talking about The General, which is a 1926 American silent movie that was released by United Artists. It was inspired by an actual event, The Great Locomotive Chase which took place during the American Civil War, and the movie was directed by Clyde Brookman and Buster Keaton. It was produced by uh, Joseph Schenck and Buster Keaton. The screenplay was written by Al Boisberg, Clyde Brookman, Charles Henry Smith, Paul Gerard Smith, and Buster Keaton. This is a Buster Keaton movie. It's our first foray into silent movies. We thought we would start with Buster Keaton, because why not? He's amazing. The uh, the plot is fairly straightforward. Uh, Buster Keaton plays a guy named Johnny Gray, who is a lo- locomotive engineer based in Georgia. It's 1861, and when the war breaks out, his girlfriend's fa- brother and father rush to enlist in the Confederate Army. When his girlfriend, Annabelle Lee, insists that he, too, join up, Johnny Gray dutifully obliges, but they won't take him because the Confederates can better use him as a train driver. They don't tell him this, though. He feels dejected. His girlfriend refuses to speak to him until he comes back in uniform. Rejected by woman and country, he heads back to his one remaining love, his train, called the General. But then the Northerners' attempt a quite nefarious train jacking. And espionage, high high speed chases, and romance ensue. Yeah,
1: that I, that plot is more complicated than I originally <laughs> gave gave it credit for.
0: When I was watching it, I was basically like, "This is a movie about trains, just some trains,
1: on yeah, some train and tracks." It's just just about
0: it. it's, it's, it's just trains and train gags. Yeah, and train porn. <laughs> if you like trains, you like this movie. <laughs> I do like trains. I <laughs> know. I did like this movie. Um,
1: um, do you have any trivia for us? I do have some trivia. So you mentioned that this is based on a real story. And it's interesting seeing, like, the the movie is from the perspective of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. So Buster Keaton's character trying to stop the people who stole his train uh, is seen as... He's the hero, but... Uh-huh. Um, the way that that incident is depicted historically is that the um, raiders who stole the train were the heroes. <laughs> and um, Yeah, it totally depends of, on who's telling the story. Yeah, I mean, it's the Union or the Confederacy. And the seven of the men who stole the train were hanged in oh. the Confederacy. Uh Um, And the survivors were awarded the first Medals of Honor. Um, And this is not the only movie about this. Uh, There was also The Great Locomotive Chase in 1956, which was a Disney movie.
0: Can we watch that? (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I would love to compare and contrast. Um, Yes. So this was also Buster Keaton's favorite of his own movies. Hmm. Do any kind of quick Google. It's on like every list of the best movies of all time, the best comedies of all time, the best direction of all time. Like it's on all of the lists as one of the best movies. So I'm glad that we chose this one. Mm -hmm. But Um, it was a box office failure. Yes. (laughs) Yes. As are Uh, most classics. (laughs) So I think this will come up later, but one of the things I read is that audiences didn't like that it was from the Confederacy perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also didn't think it was funny enough for a comedy because there were a lot of dramatic scenes. I mean, I actually was kind of surprised. Um, I mostly am familiar with Buster Keaton through his shorts, which are like much more slapsticky, vaudeville, like heavy, complete antics the whole time. So this did have a lot more drama in it than I was expecting. Mm -hmm. Uh, The scene where the Texas crashes through the bridge... Was the single most expensive shot of the entire silent movie era? Oh, that that train actually remained in the river until World War II, when it was salvaged for scrap iron. Oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> I love that they're like, we're not going to bother getting this out of the river. Buster Keaton shot most of the film outdoors in Oregon. That was the only place where the antique railroad tracks still existed and were in use. Oh, um, and that's what he needed for this. Movie uh, and since they were in Oregon, the Union and Confederate armies were played by 500 members of the Oregon National Guard. Uh, and for the scenes when the scenes when they show the armies marching towards each other, they didn't have enough people for both sides, so he just had the guards troops put on gray uniforms and film that scene of them marching one way. And then they all took off those uniforms and put on the other ones and then immediately filmed the scenes of them marching the other way. (laughs) So it's the same people in all of those scenes, just different uniforms. That's kind of brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very economical. This I thought was interesting because I don't know about you, but the version I watched of this movie was very grainy and just like not great quality. Mm -hmm. And I read that, the original copyright holder failed to renew the film's copyright, like, very early on. So it fell into public domain, like, immediately. And then anyone could duplicate and sell it. So most of the versions that are now available of the film are, like, not very well edited second or third copies. Mm -hmm. Which is why... um, the quality is just really poor of most of the versions that you see. Was yours bad as well, or was it just me? I didn't notice that it was bad. Yeah, I had... I mean, I was also watching it on, like, a larger TV, and I was like, well, maybe just, like, blowing up the picture. I don't know. But there were definitely certain scenes where I could not see what was going on well enough to, like, know what was happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's all I have for trivia.
0: The only thing I saw that you didn't mention was that... Um, they filmed it in Oregon, but they it was shot over six months. Yeah, for it only being an hour and four, fifteen minutes. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, it makes sense that there were a lot of expensive scenes in the movie because they did a lot of special effects and all that, and like stunts that would have been mm-hmm. like new at the time. Um, so, who did you bio for this movie?
0: Um, I bioed Marion Mack, who played Annabelle Lee the only movie to appear- uh, the only woman to appear in this movie.
1: Um, yeah that is true.
0: <laughs> Does it pass the Bechdel test then? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so Marion Mack was born Joey Marion McCreary in Mammoth, Utah. Um, soon after she graduated from high school she sent a letter to director Max Sennett telling him that she wanted to be an actress. Um, Senate's manager wrote back and said that if she were ever in town in Hollywood, she should stop by and have an interview. Uh, Despite that... Wow. Pretty blatant open invitation. They went to Hollywood, Mac and... Mary and Mac and her father and her stepmother, they went to Hollywood and they, instead of just, like, going there, they snuck in to Senate's studios for some... I don't know why. So, but she... She was eventually hired by Max Hennett as a what was known as a bathing beauty. She got paid $25 a week, um, and her first movie was um, a film called On a Summer Day in 1921. She appeared in a, in many short films for Max Hennett, then left his studios, Key, Keystone Studios, and then signed with Mermaid Pictures, which seems like a perfect name for a film studio, and upped her... Uh, pay to a hundred dollars a week. Um, She appeared in a lot of different short films and then worked at universal where she appeared in lots of different Westerns Um, around that time in the early 1920s. She met a producer named Lewis Lewin, who um, she met at a beauty contest. Yet another movie studio. They married in 1923 and eventually had one son um, and stayed married up until Lewin's death in 1969. So that was a long, long-lasting marriage. Um, yeah, especially for Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, it was like a 40-year marriage. So the, the same year she got married, she co-wrote and appeared in a film that I guess was semi-autobiographical called Mary of the Movies. She It was at that time, so she had already been performing for a couple of years, but she, it was at that time that she took on the stage, stage name Marion Mack. That movie, Mary of the Movies, was sort of the thing that sort of launched her into, like, more leading roles. And she appeared in a number of things in the next couple of years, including um, The General, which became her best-known role. And um, in 1928, she appeared in her last film, Alice in Movie Land, and then gave up after that just because it was too taxing to go filming out in the wilderness uh, like Oregon for six months at a time. It was just not something she wanted to do. But after she stopped acting, she began a career as a screenwriter and um, wrote a lot of scripts for short films for MGM and Warner Brothers, Um, and most of these were produced by her husband. She wrote um, a couple of films that um, Buster Keaton actually ended up um, producing, but by the 1940s, short films sort of, no one was making a lot of those, They, they, they just weren't being made anymore. Her husband wasn't doing very well physically so she she stopped that and took up real estate and they lived out the rest of their days in various estates in California and um, her husband died in 1969. She survived until 1989. When she died of a, of heart failure at the age of eighty seven.
1: Wow, that's a varied career. I know she did some things. When the movie opened, I didn't think they were going to give her much to do, and then by the mm-hmm. end, I was kind of changing my mind. I, yeah, I thought she had more to do than I expected. Yeah, who could you possibly have
0: bioed for this movie, <laughs> Emily?
1: <laughs> um, so I bioed Buster Keaton, uh-huh. and I have always argued when people. Talk about the silence. I always argue that he's my favorite, not Charlie Chaplin. Um, I kind of vaguely knew that he had a sad life, but now it is confirmed. (laughs) So uh, Joseph Frank Keaton was born on October 4th, 1895 in Pequot, Kansas, to Joe Keaton and Mira Keaton. Uh, And they were vaudevillian comedians who had a popular act. Uh, and he had a very eclectic show business upbringing. Uh, he got his name Buster from Houdini, oh. <laughs> who performed in the same medicine show for a while with the Keatons. And at age three, Keaton fell down a flight of stairs, and he was picked up and dusted off by Houdini. And then Houdini later told Keaton's father that the fall was a Buster. And then the name stuck with him for the rest of his life, and he became Buster. Huh. By the age of four, he was already performing with his parents on stage. Their act had a reputation for being one of the roughest in the country, for being, like, really wild and physical. And in it, Buster's dad would, like, throw him around the stage in crazy ways um, and do, like, elaborate stunts with him. Uh, So that's probably where he got his early ability for like physical comedy and and he was known later in his career for like doing all his own stunts um they became known as the three keatons on the vaudeville circuit and toured until buster's father his alcoholism broke up the act but by the time buster keaton was 21 he had already been performing on stage since he was four so he was a complete Veteran. He, and he really barely went to school. He was mostly performing. While in New York looking for work, he had a chance run-in with uh, Fatty Arbuckle, who was a big film star and director at oh, the yeah. time. Uh-huh. And that led to Keaton's appearance in Arbuckle's short, The Butcher Boy, in 1917. And that really launched Keaton's film career. And they developed a lifelong friendship. Um, and by 1920, after he had several successful shorts with Keaton, Arbuckle moved on to making features and Keaton inherited his studio. So that's when he start. he got the opportunity like very early in his career to begin producing his own films um, wow. with complete creative control. Like he could write direct and star in his own movies because of this relationship he had with Fatty Arbuckle. So he really kind of started out in the best position. That's amazing. Uh, At the height of his popularity, he made two features a year. And really changed... Because it was like such an early experimental time with film and Keaton was pushing it, he changed what people thought was possible with the genre. Uh, In the 1924 comedy Sherlock Jr., he used cutting-edge special effects unlike anything that audiences had seen before. And in this movie, The General... Um, he gave audiences the biggest, most expensive sequence ever in this film with the bridge collapse while the train is passing over it, uh-huh. um, sending the train into the river. Which, even as I watched it as a modern person, I gasped. Yeah, <laughs> so... I was like, "Wait a second! How did they do that?" <laughs> I know, and I mean, I you know, they it was real. It wasn't like a model. They actually did it. <laughs> crazy um but yeah they so could have been as a we, model <laughs> they I know but they were like hey we're doing the real thing so we talked about the fact that the general wasn't very financially successful but you know it went down in history after a few more silent features including college in 1927 and steamboat bill jr in 1928 uh Keaton learned that his contract had been sold to MGM resulting in a, a loss of creative control and he never regained that in his films for the rest of his career. Um, he saw it as the downfall of his career, and he made several silent films with MGM, including The Cameraman in 1928, which a lot of people consider to be one of his best silent comedies. Um, and then the era of sound came about, and his first appearance in a film with sound was in the Hollywood Review of 1929. Keaton was very popular with audiences overall, despite that MGM never allowed him to have his own production unit and they actually increasingly restricted him (laughs) in terms of creativity instead of giving him more license. So he, you know, having started out, having all of that freedom, it really rankled him. His personal life was also tumultuous. He was married three times. um, The first to Natalie Talmudge ended in divorce that left him near penniless and resulted in him being cut off from his two sons. Ugh. I don't I didn't really go into the details of like why they got divorced, but um not only did she cut him off from his sons, she changed their names back to her names and re- refused for them to have any contact with him Jeez. like until they came of age, which and he did reconnect with them later, but that's pretty rough. And then by the 1930s He had developed alcohol dependence, which was clearly in the family from his father, and sunk into depression. Um, He spent time in hospitals to treat his alcoholism, and he married a nurse, May Scrivens, but their marriage quickly ended in divorce uh, in 1935, and in 1940, he met and married his third wife, Eleanor Norris, with whom he remained for the rest of his life, Um, and he He really got kicked a lot professionally. Um, He often worked as an uncredited, underpaid gag man for comedians like the Marx Brothers. Um, And people would consult him about how to do stunts. He was consulted about how to do a realistic and comedic fall for In the Good Old Summertime in 1949, um, in which an expensive island is supposed to be destroyed in the fall. But no one could do it as well as he could, so he was given a minor role in the film. And that reignited interest in him and in his early films so he kind of got a little bit of like a media boost at that time and started to get a few more roles and appearances after several more films television and stage appearances through the 1960s he wrote his autobiography my wonderful world of slapstick um, and he completed nearly 150 films in the span of his career which is insane and his last film appearance was Uh, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum in 1966, and that premiered seven months after he died from lung cancer on February 1st, 1966. This, to me, almost seemed like one of those examples of sometimes when a young artist gets early success that it almost hurts them. Um, Not that it was his fault, but like... If you start out at that, I mean, most actors, like, work their whole careers towards, like, I want to be able to direct someday. I want to be able to produce someday. And he started out doing all of that stuff. He did whatever he wanted with his early movies. Yeah. And then, you know, he had it taken away from him, which sucked. So that's Buster Keaton. Oh, and the one thing I forgot to mention is that um, he's famous for having this very stoic facial expression. Uh Like, when he's doing all these, you know, crazy stunts and antics and, like, slapstick routines and all of that, his face is just sort of blank. And that goes all the way back to his uh, time performing with his parents that he noticed when his dad would, like, throw him around the stage and the act that if he laughed and enjoyed it, which he did find it enjoyable, the audience didn't laugh as much. So he started just assuming a neutral face. And then he kept that throughout the rest of his career. I know. And if you look up pictures of him, because he has that, like, neutral face, like, especially later in life, he looks so sad. (laughs) He just looks like a really miserable man who life beat down.
0: Yeah, I mean, I always think of him as being miserable and sad. Like, I don't really connect him with comedy just probably Well hard. and
1: after this movie did you did you think he was funny in
0: this movie? Like I, it wasn't a sad movie but I also was like this feels more like a an action movie than a comedy. I'm not laughing out loud but like it's enjoyable and like it works out in the end and you know it's going to work out in the end so I guess it's a comedy in that sense like he doesn't like die in that in a train wreck.
1: Compared to other things I've seen him in this was my like least laugh out loud funny movie Mm -hmm. but I still really liked it and thought it was a good movie but it Mm was it wasn't it didn't have enough slapstick in it although there were certain things like when um he stuffs Annabelle into the rucksack I thought that was really funny
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: And towards the end, there was sort of like a frogger scene where he keeps trying to cross the road and then all these like horses keep stampeding. (laughs) Like that kind of stuff. I liked it. I was like more of that. And actually, after the movie ended, I was like, I don't feel like I got enough slapstick. So I went and watched... Um, one of his shorts with Fatty Arbuckle called The Chef, and immediately was, like, laughing way hard. Which is just, like, there's no plot in it. It's just people doing silly things in a restaurant. <laughs> so, <laughs> so clearly I'm the lowest common denominator. <laughs> Overall, what did you think, Hill?
0: I, so I think this was the first Buster Keaton movie I'd seen, and it has been a very, very long time since I've seen a silent movie so I didn't really know what to expect and I think you know in the first 10 minutes I was like oh what's this gonna be like if there are like title cards every five minutes but I was surprised at how little dialogue was necessary to understand what was happening and to understand how the plot was unfolding I didn't expect to not like it but I expect I liked it more than I thought I was going to
1: yeah and it just watching it you could tell that it was a really beautiful piece of film like, just mm-hmm. the whole, the mm-hmm. whole thing was just, you could see why it would be on, like, director lists and things like that, because, yeah. like, the stunts were great, like, the shots were great, mm-hmm. all of there that. There were a so lot of I, really good shots. Yeah, and it, so it, it felt like, wow, I'm watching a piece of art more than, like, I felt more like that than getting really absorbed in the plot. Mm-hmm. I think part of it, and I know that this is, I should have some suspension of disbelief and all of that, but, like... I didn't particularly like rooting for him as like a Confederate soldier. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I didn't have a lot of... I didn't feel like, oh, if they don't stop this train, it's going to be terrible.
0: Yeah, there was... When he finally gets to the town where he can warn the Confederates that the Union Army is coming... And then the like, you know, then the army like starts to you know ride out to go meet the 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 invading army. You know, there's this shot where the general, I guess, um, you know, pulls out, or the, I guess the the guy carrying the flag pulls out the flag, and it's a Confederate flag. And I was like, oh crap, he he told the wrong army, he went the wrong direction. And then I was like, no, <laughs> in this movie, the Union <laughs> Army is the bad guys. <laughs> veterans are the good Um, guys this is
1: ridiculous Yep. i wonder why that why they made that decision i mean i could see them like making this movie because it is like it's an interesting piece of history Mm -hmm. and i guess if you chose to portray from the union side like it would have been a bad ending because everyone would have been hanged but yeah (laughs) like but still i was kind of like why why be johnny gray yeah unless it was just that there's like more gag opportunities
0: right because he's the one who's driving the train or i guess the unions are union soldiers are driving the train too they're driving a different train i take it all back i mean (laughs) it i you know i i we as we were as i was watching this movie i was thinking i was thinking a lot of both gone with the wind and it happened one night for different reasons but i was like this is basically Gone with the Wind meets It Happened, happened One Night, where, like, it's a cross-country trip, and it is, like, from the Confederate side, you're deep in the South, and it is from the Confederate side. There are a lot of nighttime shots. <laughs> and, um,
1: yeah.
0: And, and I don't know, actually, if, like, in the 19, the, you know, in the late 1920s and 1930s, if you know, people thought about the Confederacy in a different way, because it was, at that point, it had only been, what, 60 years since the war? So maybe there was less of a, like, set historical, like, narrative about it? I don't know.
1: I don't know. I mean, that was in the background research that, you know, some audiences didn't like that it was Confederate, so. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, you're right. right. I didn't find anything about why he chose the story to be done that way. One thing I liked about it was that subtext of the movie was that STEM workers save the day (laughs) (laughs) because like, he's an engineer and they're like, we're not taking you in the arm. And he was also depicted as like way shorter and punier than everyone else in the Mm -hmm. movie, like, like of, of inferior physical stature. And then when the, the train is stolen, he's the only one who goes after it. Yep. Determined. And they throw, like, a ton of obstacles at him, but he has a problem-solving mind, so he just solves all the problems and keeps going. And I was like, this is a total stunt. This is the difference between, like, me and Mike, because, like, they would have put one obstacle on that track, and I would have been like, you know, I I guess I I can't go anymore. (laughs) Like, just, like, I guess I'm going back to the town. And, like, (laughs) Mike would have been, like, he would have been all over that, like, I'll solve this problem, I'll solve that problem. We'll use, like... This gunpowder? And, and So I kind of thought that it made the engineer look cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting perspective on it. Because he, like, yeah, he doesn't have the... He's not, like, traditionally a badass. He's the one who saves the day. Yeah.
1: It, and it did, for most of the movie, it was just, like, one man fighting alone for what's right. I mean, like, according to their honor code him fighting for what is right and like there really wasn't a lot of community support for most of it
0: well except for he like rescues so when the train gets stolen they end up stealing annabelle lee accidentally and she is their like prisoner and they don't know what to do with her and then he like coincidentally like goes in out of the rain into the same house where she's being held prisoner And he rescues her, but then he has to like figure out what to do with her. And then she's on the train with him, and she doesn't know how to drive a train because no one knows how to drive a train. And he like (laughs) gets fed up with her. There's a point where he like strangles her and then kisses her. And I was like, I don't like. I don't think that's that's not like she doesn't know how to drive a train. Strangling
1: someone and then kissing him is not a good thing. Not good. It's not good. See, that was one of those parts where, like, the movie was kind of grainy, and I was like, is he straggling her? And I was like, oh, no, he's embracing her. No. <laughs> so he totally... was strangling her. <laughs> because she
0: didn't know I how did to, know. like, she didn't know how to put wood in the fire. Because she's not
1: a train driver. She's not an engineer. She yeah, has other fine qualities. Trains are relatively new technology, and yeah. nobody knows how to use them. I did like how, in those later scenes where they were on the train together, that... She was actively participating. Like, she had some Mm -hmm. agency and was contributing to their cause. Right. She was doing Um, something. She wasn't just, like, a damsel the whole time. You know, maybe, like, 80% of the time.
0: (laughs) One thing Um, I did like a lot about this movie was the way that his, he as a character was just, like, totally oblivious to the stuff that was happening around him. Actually, I wrote in my notes, his obliviousness is a mood. Like, when he's on the train and he's, like, messing around with the train and the army, he's, like, going into enemy territory, the southern army is retreating in the opposite direction, and he just isn't, like, he just doesn't notice that the southern army is retreating around him, and he's about to, like, deal with the Union army all by himself... He's just not paying attention. <laughs> just like... Well, that's
1: also very stem mind. He's just, like, hyper-focused on what he's doing and not aware of what's going on around him. That's right. Yeah, yeah that was funny. I, I also thought the scenes where he ends up at that, like, is it a general's house or, like, a house they're using as quarters mm-hmm. and he's under the table? I yes. thought that was a funny scene.
0: Hilarious. Although um, then
1: he, like, he's,
0: like, it's classic mansplaining where he's he like goes and saves her. He like knocks out two the two guards to get into her room, and then he like goes into the room and is like first title card and ages. He's like be, we have to be really quiet. And then there's these shots of him knocking over the table and like slamming down the window twice. And he just like cannot he can't do the thing. And he's like getting frustrated. It's like dude, you're the problem. You're not.
1: Like, yes, you're the one making he all is the noise. The I liked that the carryover from, like, the slapstick stuff was that a lot of the way he overcame obstacles when there were people around was he would just bop them on the head. I knew, I know. And, like, he did that in that scene, and then, like, towards the end a lot, he was doing that. And I was like, so you just do one quick bop, and that person's out of commission. <laughs> that how it works. How do I learn that move? I know. You
0: just have to get a piece of wood, and then you just bop people over the head. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I thought that was funny. There some of the humor was kind of like macabre though with um towards the end of the movie, like when he's operating the cannon mm-hmm. and that sniper's like picking them off.
0: Yeah. It was just
1: like it was like, ha ha, another one died, another one died, ha 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 and I was like, No, this is like not funny. <laughs> yes, <Yeah, laughs> four just, people. Like, people have are died. Being shot. Yeah.
0: They're all
1: just being shot around you and that's it's not great. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is a movie where you can't think too hard, because, and luckily it's not very realistic, like, it's not like they had blood spurting out of them, or fake blood spurting out of them, like, you yeah. could just be like, yeah, that's fake.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is good, I mean, that's why the bopping on the head works for me, because I don't like a lot of gore, <laughs> it's no. just like, I don't want to see it, it, it right. and when the people were shot, they just fell down, and I was like, alright. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I prefer to think that they are just, like, momentarily stunned.
1: <laughs> they're all wearing, like, bulletproof vests
0: under their uniforms. Kevlar hasn't been invented for 50 years, but they're, they're all
1: wearing it. <laughs> what did you think of how Annabelle shames him in the beginning of the movie about enlisting?
0: Well, what... I I sort of mentioned this in the overview, which is that, like or in the synopsis where, like, if the Confederate Army had just been, like, the enlisting office had been, like, had said to him, we are not enlisting you because you are more important to the Confederacy as an engineer, like, none of this movie would have happened. If they just said, we are rejecting you because you're an engineer and we need engineers... There, there yeah. you go. Co- contributing to the war effort. And, you know, then he could have said to his, to Annabelle, like, look, they wouldn't enlist me because I'm an engineer. So I'm just gonna continue to do my job and that's my contribution to the war effort. That she was like, don't speak to me until you're in uniform? I was like, Jesus yeah. lady. Like, I mean, I guess, like, that she has to take that tack because her brother and her father, you know, the, her, 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 like, her whole family is, like, enlisting, so she better be supportive because otherwise she might, like, go crazy with you know, worry or whatever. But I was like, "Oh God!"
1: Like, yeah, it reminded me of in World War One how they used to set like give people white feathers to shame them. Yeah, do you know about that and how? Or people who got shell shock and like couldn't go back. Yeah, into like- battle. Like women would go around and give them white feathers to shame them, and then they would like commit suicide. It was awful. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good thing to do, people. And, yeah, I was surprised they didn't tell him directly either, especially when he kept coming up to the window, because yeah, it was like, like the third you time want this guy sh- to go
0: away? Yeah, yeah, just tell him why. A little yeah, transparency
1: goes a long way, guys. I know in World War II, my grandpa, they tro- they he worked in a like medical instrument factory, mm-hmm. and they initially didn't want... Him in the army because they were like, We need you to keep making these medical instruments. But he ended up enlisting anyway. But yeah, you know, they told him directly, No, we need you at this factory.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but, which like makes sense. There are so many ways to support the military industrial complex.
1: <laughs> yes, as we know, having worked <laughs> in science history. Yeah, oh, beautiful
0: girl, what a gorgeous creature! Beautiful girl
1: call a preacher what can I do but give my heart to you do you are we ready to talk about costumes yes um, do you have any broad comments
0: my broad comment is that those pants look really comfortable and I just <laughs> want to wear them like all of his like uniform pants but also it reminded me that like I don't know what time of year it is but like wearing wool And
1: the summer is hot. Yeah, I felt... Nothing was super striking to me. Except that, like, a lot of the clothing... I mean, the uniforms, I mean, to my, like, untrained eye, looked fairly accurate. But, like, Annabelle's clothing didn't look period appropriate to me. No. And she definitely had that whole style going on of the early silent stars. But just kind of looked bedraggled. (laughs) I call it, like, bedraggled chic. (laughs) which I wasn't super into, but that was just the thing. Yeah, Um, well,
0: and there were moments where they get, like, the water poured on them. You know, she's, like, wandering around this train, vestibule or whatever, in what should be soaking wet clothing, but, you know, in the
1: next scene, she's totally dry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. Um, I read about that scene that Buster Keaton did not tell her that, she was supposed to get soaked in that scene, so that was real surprise. Oh Which is funny, because when I was watching it I was like, oh, she's really like acting big. Like she's doing large acting there, <laughs> and that must have been because she was actually pissed. She was just having some large feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't have too much else about the costumes. I did find the like very heavy eyeliner distracting, but mm-hmm. that also is just of the time. Yeah.
0: We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's
1: misery. Well, what do you think in terms of a social justice message? I mean, I think we've talked
0: about it just a little bit sort of in a meta sort of way that it is, you know, it sort of challenges how we usually think about the Civil War because, you know, I think we both were like, why, why are they telling this from the South South point of view? Why aren't they telling it from the North North? part of you that's the story we know as northerners and that we're comfortable with because the northerners won the war but you know but on the other hand the union army killed a lot of people even if like we think that they were on the right side of history they still you know terrorized a lot of towns and so maybe it's worth like seeing the war from you know the other side's point of view
1: that's true yeah i didn't (sighs) I Which is not you know, oh. uh, not an apology
0: for the Confederacy. I want to so be. So what I'm
1: hearing clear. is that the War of Northern Aggression. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no. Was it was all about states' rights? Is that right, Hill? That's right. Slavery was not uh, an issue. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, no,
0: let me, let me clarify. I am <laughs> from the North. I'm pro-Abraham Lincoln. Pro- sure you are. Yeah, I'm a big <laughs> fan of Abe's. <laughs>
1: yeah, I didn't think that there was a huge social justice message. More ju- like like, according to, like, the honor code of the movie, mm-hmm. like, it was kind of fight for what's right and stand up for what's right, you know, mm-hmm. even if you're the only one doing it, and yeah. keep fighting. Yeah. That was... That was the main message. I didn't think it was super social justice see? You know, someone stole his
0: train, so he was like, I gotta go get my train. But he also was like, I don't know who stole my train, but I'm gonna go get my train no matter who it is. And then when he, it seemed like at some point he had a better idea of who it was. And he was like, no, I gotta go. Well, when he was under the table, he was like, I could just walk away and make sure that my train is okay and, you know, and get my girl. But I'm going to go tell the, you know, the Southern General that, like, these people are coming and they're going to blow up all the bridges.
1: Yeah. I was kind of surprised that the General believed him so readily. Yeah. I, well, sure. <laughs> it's Just it's a because movie. <laughs> he wasn't a soldier and he didn't know him. That's right. <laughs> but-
0: if a random person came up to me and told me something was happening, I would be like,
1: "Well, who are you again?" <laughs> <laughs> he was just like immediately like, "Everyone." <laughs> to your horses. <laughs> my own life making my own decisions for a long while now it's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again we've sort of established like uh, maybe somewhat social justice what about Bactol? <laughs> I mean one
0: one woman in this whole movie Similar to Treasure of Sierra Madre, I think, like, it highlights the fact, by not having really any women at all, it highlights some pretty masculine themes, I think. Yeah.
1: I mean, she does have lines, she does have some action, and, you know, contributes to the effort. So I I believe that this is a more feminist movie than Treasure of the Sierra
0: Madre. I mean, like, any... (laughs) Every movie is more feminist than Treasure Zero <laughs> so. Madras. Because there is
1: a woman in it who speaks <laughs> and does stuff. That's right. But yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't even qualify at the most basic level. So no, no Bechtel test passed. <laughs> like a lot of silent era movies that we remember as like the famous ones. Mm-hmm. I, I would be hard pressed to find any that passed the Bechtel test. <laughs>
0: Yeah, mostly because they're all romances, I would say.
1: Yeah. I mean, not all um, of them, well,
0: but, like, <laughs>
1: primarily. Yeah, and, it, like, if there's a woman in the movie, she's a love, the interest. love interest. And that's the only woman. Um, so what rating would you give this movie?
0: I would probably give it a three. Yeah, a three. Because it was kind of fun to watch all of the, you know, all of the train antics were really
1: enjoyable to watch, which we didn't really talk about that, but I like a good
0: train scene, and this was 75 minutes of train scenes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did you like that the The title, The General, was not about anything military, but was just about the train? Yes, I was, I liked
0: that, actually, now that you mention it, that was, a, like, a nice, like, surprise. This is a war movie, but it's not what The General refers to. What um, rating would you give it?
1: I think I'd give it a four. Uh-huh. Which... It's not because it's the kind of movie that I'd be like, oh, you know what I really feel like watching tonight? Like, the general. It's more just that I think it's, it's a beautiful artwork. Mm-hmm. And, like, if I was teaching a film history class, I'd be like, everyone should watch this movie. Yeah. I just think it's cool the way Buster Keaton pushed film forward with, like, things that he did in this movie. Yeah. Um, and even today, the special effects well they weren't even special effects the stunts still impressed me Mm -hmm. and like we're way past this stuff so yeah it is very impressive i didn't say this earlier but i do like probably because of that same like darn german film class (laughs) that i took like a long time ago i do like watching silent movies sometimes Mm -hmm. and i like maybe like once or twice a year i will go to like one of the local theaters where they have live accompaniment and mm-hmm. they show restored silence. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing we didn't talk about the score. The score is also really good for this movie. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. So so good. It did kind of like scratch an itch for me, <laughs> um, but I would have preferred more slapstick.
0: Scratches the silent, not the slapstick. Exactly.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: so what's our next movie, Hill? Our next movie is a return to... The World of Audrey Hepburn with Roman Holiday. So
1: good. Can't wait. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex.
0: Follow the Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens.
1: And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.